Well, this morning we want to continue our um, understanding of uh, Yom Kippur. You know, I have to say that, um, I think I've shared this probably about a thousand times, uh, but, you know, one of my memories of growing up is, for some reason, I remember it always being really hot on these holidays. I mean, like, of course, you know, there was no air, no air conditioning and in those days in the synagogue that I grew up in, and it was very uncomfortable. I remember feeling uncomfortable and hot. So I, I, that is no longer the case, uh, uh, evidently, as I look outside. Uh, although last night, isn't it true, we had to turn on the AC? Was that, was that the case, right? See? Okay. But, uh, but anyway, very good. Uh, let's see. I think um, uh, what we want to do today is talk a little bit more about, of course, the meaning of uh, this uh, holiday, uh, this observance, and we want to ask ourselves a few questions. First of all, we want to remember where we're, where we are in this uh, on this journey, right? So we remember that uh, on Rosh Hashanah we heard the shofar sound and the wake-up call to change directions. And uh, on Rosh Hashanah, we talked about that change of direction. If you remember, uh, we talked about the fact that repentance is not just in our heads. Repentance is something you do, right? That uh, there are many passages, we looked at a few, many passages uh, in the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the Gospels, the letters, the, the, the entire uh, Bible, that when you repent, you turn. You put away idols. In a way, you know, uh, Paul, he doesn't use the word repent in this sense, but I think you could almost supply it when he says, put off the old, old self, put on the new self. That, in a way, is he's saying, Repent. Don't be doing the things that you've been doing. Now turn and do this. Now, uh, literally, it's a directional kind of word. You're turning. You know, you're, uh, you may be going this direction, but you've got to recalculate, as your GPS sometimes might tell you, right? That uh, you've missed the mark. Recalculate. Turn. This is, and this is what you have to do now. That's what repentance is. And we talked on Rosh Hashanah that we repent all the time. We should be repenting our whole lives. Not just at one moment. Just like we don't just engage God at one moment. Uh, but throughout our lives, we learned last night, we continually uh, ask for forgiveness. We continually repent. We continually confess. It is a way of life. And it draws us constantly, constantly closer to God. And I would suggest that it's our lack of repentance our lack of confession, uh, and just this giving God a tip every once in a while of a prayer or something, uh, that keeps us from having a robust uh, life in the Lord. Uh, that there is always, uh, you know, that, um, that need to constantly be turning. And so, isn't it interesting, especially I know that for most of us, when we think of the New Covenant, okay, we're in Messiah in the New Covenant, uh, and so when you read a book like uh, the letter uh, uh, to Ephesus, the Ephesians, I mean, how new covenant can you get, right? Uh, but what does he say? 
He doesn't say to those people who knew the Lord, he doesn't say, okay, just, just keep going. Just, you're all right. He says, no. He tells them, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Why does he have to tell them that even? Why does he have to even bring it up? Why not just say, this is who you are. This is your identity in Messiah. So enjoy and, and um, you know, be a testimony to those who don't know the Lord. No, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then he has to tell them, uh, he has to tell them some things that you would think that someone who knows uh, the Messiah would not need to be told, right? Uh, he says here, um, this I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the pagans also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. This is in the fourth chapter. Then in verse 20, he reminds these people who have, who have embraced Messiah, but you did not learn Messiah this way. If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Messiah, Yeshua, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That Repent, that's what he's saying. That you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind, but don't just think about it. He doesn't say just don't think about it. I edit that. And put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. And he goes on, steal no longer, don't give the devil an opportunity, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. So there are physical manifestations of repentance that we are to engage in all the time. That is, I think, in our culture, in our, I'll use this term, it's not a very messianic, in our Christian culture, there's almost no greater word that we need to say to ourselves and others as don't take your salvation for granted, but every moment we need to appreciate what God has done and continually confess our sins. Do you know that the good news is not just about my landing place at the end of the day? It's not just about when I go to heaven. I mean, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I know that that, is, that drives us, uh, many of us. And so therefore, it is important when we're talking about that to know we have an assurance, to know that when we embrace Yeshua, that a transaction's taken place, that we belong to him, and there's no sin greater than the grace of God. That's absolutely true. But the whole story is not simply, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. A big part of the good news has to do with today and now and the way we live, and the difference we can make in, in our own lives, in, in our quality of the life we live, and in our families and communities. That's why we need to remember that and to always be confessing our sins and to always be repenting, always be turning and walking toward God. There's always going to be, listen, if you drive like me, there are times when you're going to uh, make a wrong turn, you know, you, uh, you turn right when you should have turned left. As my son said, one of the last things my son said uh, when I saw him off on the plane to Eretz Yisrael, he said, 
be good to the brakes in my car, okay? <laughs> yes, he did say that. Uh, because I have a tendency to, you know, get hard on that brake. Oh, 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 wait, I got to turn, right? So life is like that. That's, that's life, okay? Right turns, left turns. There's always a need to turn and repent, right? That we live in a world where when we receive Messiah, we're still us. <laughs> we're still us. We still have our habits. We still have our temperament. Uh, we still have tsuris at times, and we still have problems, headaches, issues. Uh, I like my boss. I don't like my boss. I like my neighborhood. I don't like my neighborhood. Uh, my kids this, my husband this, my wife that. We still have all that. The difference is now there's a quality to our life that allows us not to be like pinballs uh, whose trajectory of life is determined by all those things. That's the good news that, that now we belong to God now that we're part of what He is doing in this world and we have a different quality of life, a robust uh, life. And so even though all these things happen, I still am walking that straight path and I can still make a difference in the lives of the people around me. And I might say, especially when I'm in those, those times, when people can say to me, wow, how come you're not all upset and just falling apart over this? Oh, because I have a significance in my life that is far beyond my job. And, and what might that be? Well, you know, uh, my relationship with God. I'm called to make a difference in this world, and let me tell you all about it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, and so it's very important. And why is that? Because Yeshua came, and he rose from the dead. It's the game changer, you know? Uh, Yeshua's uh, death and resurrection, that's the game changer for, uh, you know, for, the, uh, uh, for our entire lives and for, frankly, uh, the history of this world. So that's what we learned on, on Rosh Hashanah, the need to continually uh, repent. And then we learned that during the 10 days of awe, during these 10 days, we are to, in a sense, imitate what God has done for us and what we believe that he will do for us. And that is forgive us, constantly forgiving us. You know, when we say uh, we need to continually repent, we need to continually confess, uh, well, that means that God will continually forgive and God will continually cleanse and God will continually uh, use us in, in marvelous ways uh, as, as we do those things. He has obligated himself via covenant relationship never to give up on us, even though everybody else might give up on us, even though we might give up on ourselves. He never gives up on us. And so when he, when we come to him to get clean, he cleans us. So now we're presentable once again. And we can go and continually move forward. And so by that fact of forgiveness, knowing that, we are to imitate that and forgive others. When people do something to us, even perceived or real, we need to forgive them. Do you realize the grace and mercy that you show someone by forgiving them? You, in a sense, are uh, the instrument of cleansing. You are an instrument of cleansing. I know that, that just recently uh, I uh, did something 
that uh, hurt someone's feelings. And uh, they told me. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, she, you know, we probably need to get together. I said, oh, listen, you know, this is the season of forgiveness. And it's all good. And I have to tell you, that made me feel good. It made me feel like, oh, that's good. You know, and, and it restored and made stronger even the relationship that I had with that person. And so that's what we do during these uh, 10 days of, um, of, of awe, is strengthen our relationships by forgiving one another, which are physical acts, physical acts. And I'm sure that there are some of us here today that are still working on some of that uh, forgiveness kind of stuff, right? But the great news is, is that God has indeed taken away our sins and he has forgiven us and he has loved us so we can love and we can forgive because he has first loved and forgiven us. We need to believe that by faith. We need to believe that even though we don't see it. Um, that is part of our salvation, very important part of our salvation experience. See? Now, so when we come to Yom Kippur, what's that all about? Yom Kippur is traditionally, this is the, the day of reconciliation. Really, if we're going we're gonna to get technical about it, this would be the day of reconciliation. In fact, I have read uh, Jewish sources. It's fascinating when you read Jewish sources that, I mean, I'm talking about traditional, you know, rabbinic Jewish sources, that when you really read them, and you read about them, that you learn how over the course of thousands of years, a lot of changes have taken place in the observance of all these holidays. It's, it's an amazing thing. There's, uh, there are some places uh, in the literature where some have taught that Yom Kippur actually is this great day of rejoicing. Why is it a day of rejoicing? Because it's a day of cleansing. It's the day when we're received back to God. And so... What are we doing being so somber? We should be more somber on Rosh Hashanah and less somber on Yom Kippur, this Jewish rabbinic rabbi uh, uh, writes. I, I love stuff like that. You know, because if we say that, we're like in big trouble. But you know, somebody else says it, it's okay. But the fact of the matter is that that is uh, the, the, the truth, that this is the, a great day of a reconciliation. Uh, what has happened is that over the years, it has become much more identified with an individual, with Rosh Hashanah being identified with the Jewish New Year, uh, and with Yom Kippur being the whole, the whole time of repentance and, uh, you know, and being reconciled. The judgment, it's like the judgment is on Yom Kippur. The judgment, whether one, one is written in the Book of Life, or in the book of death, as we said last year. So it becomes a very somber day. But the wonderful thing about God is, as we've said, is that he has obligated himself via covenant relationship to receive us when we repent. We do have that. Uh, that's not a good work, by the way. Okay, It's not a good work. That is simply a response to God. Okay, Is to repent and to confess. So, Back in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, we looked at this last night. Uh, we talked about these sacrifices, but someone asked me, maybe I might want to say it again. So, hey, who am I to say no? If there's one, that's ten, right? Okay. So, uh, 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 like we said last night, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, this is the day, right? 
this is the day of uh, this is the day of cleansing. So it's very interesting when you when you read it. You don't. It says humble your souls. You need to humble your souls uh, before the Lord because see he's going into the holy of holies and you want him to come out. So in that sense, you see it is indeed the day of judgment, right? And uh, we know uh, that in these previous, like we said last night, in the previous chapters, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, we see all the things that can keep us from the holy place, very physically, you know, in, in those, in that, at that time, right? Impurities that would keep us, sins and other things, right? That would keep us from being fully engaged. And so what the high priest does uh, is uh, he offers a bull for a sin offering for himself and for his family so that he himself can go in, right? He himself has to be, he can't just walk in. He's like everybody else. And so he, uh, he uh, brings this offering for himself, right? Uh, and then uh, there are two goats uh, uh, that, are, uh, that are offered. You see, if we go down to verse um, uh, 15, it says, uh, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did in the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions, in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement for the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for the, all the assembly of Israel. See, now this is very interesting. If we were to take this all apart. It's fascinating. Because when you read it carefully, he's doing it for the people, but he's cleansing the place. He's cleansing the place because of the sins of the people. So he's making atonement for the holy place for the people, okay? So that they can now have access, access. They can now have access, right? Now, have access in the sense that they couldn't all go into the holy of holies, but now they have access to God via the high priest, uh, and there is a cleansing of the holy place. And the cleansing of the holy place represents the fact that God can now dwell in their midst. Okay? All right. All right. Then we read, uh, then verses 18 and 19 describe how he does that. He put where he places the blood of the goat and so on. By smearing the, by smearing the blood on the horns of the altar and the mercy seat. You see, the blood was viewed as the cleansing agent. And so the blood is cleansing the holy place. Now, verse 20, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Okay, so there was two goats, right? One became the, the offering that died and the other one, the Azazel. Uh, the name Azazel has lots, uh, there's a lot of lore associated with the word Azazel. But this goat comes to be known as scapegoat, Right? And you know what a scapegoat is? A scapegoat is someone who takes the blame for something they, they either haven't done or, in, you know, in our world, takes the blame for something that they're just maybe a little part of, but there's a lot of other people that they're taking the blame for, 
That's what a scapegoat is. Right? Okay? So that goat is going to take the blame for the sins of the people. And so the high priest lays his hands on the head of the goat, as, uh, as it says. Then Aaron, and, uh, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the impurities of the sons of Israel. Now that might have been quite an interesting thing. You know, how many impurities were there for him to confess? You know, it could have taken a long time. I'm sure that there were, I'm, uh, I'm sure, like I was there, you know. I'd have to ask Alfred Edersheim because he was there. But, but anyway, uh, uh, you know, perhaps there was a liturgy already at this time or uh, some sort of a prayer that represented all of the sins uh, of the children of Israel. And remember also that it's not speaking here so much of, you know, the sins of Yoshi over here and Shmuel over here and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Aunt Sarah uh, down there. No, the sins of the children of Israel, the, the idolatry of Israel, the unbelief of Israel, you know, things of that nature. Okay? Confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Iniquities, transgressions, sins. It's making a point, right? And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Okay? Then Aaron uh, shall come uh, into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and she, he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come uh, forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. Uh, and, um, and then it goes on to talk about these washings and so on. Okay? Then, as we read in um, verse 29 last night, and it shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and do not do any work, with, no matter who you are, you know, native, alien, sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, make you clean from your sins before the Lord. Okay? And so this was the day for them to become clean. The fact that it's in Scripture, and the fact that it is part of the Torah instructions for the priests, may I suggest, tells us that God is saying, frankly, it's going to work. You're not just going to do this one time and then you're going to all die off. But as long as the high priest does what he's supposed to do, I will cleanse you year after year. And this was the year, this was the time of year, the day of the year of this, uh, of this cleansing, of this reconciliation, of this uh, renewal. Okay. Now, when you come to... Now, I will also say this. God, in His grace and His mercy, um, did not do away with His covenant relationship with Israel, even when they didn't do this. They didn't do this every year. Read carefully the book of Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Do you know, do you remember what Hezekiah did when he became king? And Josiah, what he did when he became king? especially Josiah, he had to open the doors of the temple because they hadn't been opened in years. 
Remember how he had to, uh, he had people cleaning it out? It, was, it had not been used in years. God did not do away with the people. That is an amazing truth. His covenant is unconditional. Were they able to live an abundant life uh, of uh, peace with God? Were they able to have victory, so to speak, with God in the, in the way that uh, God had originally intended? Were they to live out the vision for their lives the way God had said no? No, they were not. And 2 Kings has a very bad ending. They go into exile. They go into exile. So they did not lose the covenant relationship, but they were not able to live the way God wanted them to be able to live and to be fruitful and multiply and and enjoy a wonderful life and peace in the land. No, that they could not enjoy because they were not cleansed. Now the great news is, is that the Messiah has come. And as we saw last night, in one place, in uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, at the beginning, there's no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua because he is the sin offering. He's the sin offering. And I would suggest that also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from our uh, New Covenant reading today, when it says he became sin, I would say that uh, a, a legitimate uh, interpretation of that is he became the sin offering. He became the sin offering. Uh, the fact is, is that what Yeshua did, Yeshua was sinless. That goat back in Leviticus, you could say, did not, we don't read about its own sins, right? But it took upon itself, it was placed on it, what was placed on it were the sins of the people. And so, therefore, that goat had to be outside the camp. That goat had to suffer because of the sins of the people. When Yeshua came into this world uh, for the the ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of dying for our sins and being raised from the dead, He is indeed the sin offering. Our sins are placed on Him and He dies. So he, He becomes... Uh, through his blood, one could say, the cleansing agent. But also, he becomes, as it were, the Azazel. He becomes the scapegoat. He becomes the blame taker for all of our sins, all the sins of mankind. That's why, ultimately, his death becomes the game, his, his death and resurrection becomes the game changer for the whole world. But the, whole, the sad thing is the whole world doesn't recognize this great, marvelous truth. And so when Yeshua says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? May I suggest first, nobody knows exactly what was going through his mind when he said it, okay? But there are some good choices. One is, he, he was saying Psalm 22. He was like, this is Psalm 22, you know? Uh, which, which describes uh, very much uh, the death of the Messiah on the tree, on the cross, on the execution stake. But maybe also, he was experienced maybe a little bit what that Azazel, scapegoat, perhaps experienced in the sense of having to be taken far away, having to be taken out into the wilderness because now that that goat had the sins of Israel on it, it was unclean. 
And it could not be taken into the holy place. And so here, uh, the people now are cleansed and that goat is left outside. You know, it's sort of uh, a good picture of that is in the Gospels when we read about Barabbas, who was a criminal, who uh, is set free, and Yeshua dies, right? Uh, Pilate says, shall I release uh, this uh, Yeshua or shall I release uh, Barabbas? And I say, Barabbas. And to Yeshua, they say, crucify, crucify. And so in the sense you see in that little frame there, that's us. Yeshua took his sins on him, on himself. Yeshua takes our sins on himself. We are cleansed. And so Yeshua fulfills the two goats of, uh, of Leviticus uh, chapter uh, 16. And the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is quite clear uh, on this. We're not making it up. There's a lot of places we could turn, but in Hebrews chapter 9, we read not only is he uh, the uh, goats, he's also the high priest, uh, and not to mention the temple. But we read, we can start in verse uh, 13. It's helpful, I suppose. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What He's saying here is that we become the holy place. That's what he said. We become like the holy place. He cleansed the, uh, the holy place. We become the, uh, the holy place. And that means that we become a place of purity. We become a place ourselves. We become a place of holiness. And that means we, we become a place with a clear conscience, a clean conscience. See? That's what he does for us. It's not some superficial thing, but he cleans our conscience so that we can wake up in the morning and, and say, wow, it's like a new day. I can serve God. He has forgiven me and you know, you know, when you have a clear conscience, you feel good. That's what Yeshua has done for us. And then it says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. All right, now, if we jump down to verse 23... Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The whole point is, is that Yeshua's sacrifice is a better sacrifice. Yeshua's priesthood is a better priesthood. And so, therefore, stick with the program, is what uh, he's saying. Now, he says, um, For Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year. Isn't it interesting? Year by year? Year by year. He's talking about a Yom Kippur with, with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages... 
He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's interesting that the word consummation is in that verse. It tells us that when Yeshua came and died for our sins and, and rose from the dead, that was it. That was the moment. That is the, I said it already a few times this morning, the game changer of history. Because of his death and resurrection, there can be the forgiveness of sins. Because of his death and resurrection, we can break uh, horrible habits that uh, have been in our, li- you know, in our lives. Because of his death and resurrection, ultimately, wars will stop. Because of his death and resurrection, ultimately, there will no longer be hungry people every night. Because of his death and resurrection, the day will come when the earth will produce uh, everything it's supposed to produce. Because of his death and resurrection, the day is going to come when, there no, no, when no one's going to die anymore. And no one's going to get any diseases anymore. See? That's because of his death and resurrection. He has, he has forever abrogated the curse. Forever. You see? Not, the point he's making is, it's not every year. Now we're clean, now we're not clean. Now we're clean, now we're not clean. No, when we embrace Yeshua, we become like this tiny, tiny little microcosm of new heaven, new earth. Uh, we're cleansed. We belong to him. However, the day is going to come ultimately when Yeshua manifests himself again and the whole world will, will recognize uh, who he is. And then in that day, we'll no longer have the sins of the flesh to still contend with. But today, we still do have those things, even as Messiah followers. That's why we need to repent and confess our sins. One could say that the outworking of our salvation takes our whole lives. But the consummation, the beginning of the relationship, has a moment. That's when we embrace the Messiah. It's when we become related to Him, like a marriage. In a marriage, you know, a marriage hopefully grows and grows, and you know each other better and better and better. Uh, Yet, there is the assurance of of the marriage. See? Uh, And so, the, uh, the marriage was consummated. And so we see that here in this verse manifested to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Messiah also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. And so there, as plain as day, we see that yes, he's going to return. He's answering a question that might have been asked, our life is really lousy. We have, we have embraced Messiah, but life is lousy. And so we're actually even considering throwing in the towel. And so he's saying, hang on! This is what Yeshua did. You may not be feeling it completely yet, but hang on! Because he uh, shall appear a second time. Not in reference to sin. He did that already. But to just finally, once and for all, sit on his throne and rule and, and all those hopes that we have in the Messiah will come to pass. 
That was the purpose, and frankly, of, uh, of, this, uh, of this book. And so now, if I jump down to the middle of the, second, uh, of the next chapter, in, in chapter 10, in verse 10, by this, will, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Messiah Yeshua once and for all. And every priest standing daily, now he's talking more about the daily sacrifices, daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hang on, it's not all over yet. That you have now, uh, you are part of this bride of Messiah. You are now part of this uh, kingdom of God. Uh, your sins are forgiven. You still may have difficulty in your life, but he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Your, yes, he has taken away your sins, but we live in this sin-sick world. But wait, he's coming back. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Uh, after uh, uh, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their sins, upon their mind I will write them. And he says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering. He is talking about this issue of your suffering while Yeshua did cleanse you from your sins, you're suffering and you're like on the fence and you're kind of getting depressed and you don't like the way uh, life is. And he's saying, don't waver, stick with the program. I mean, I could go on and on about Hebrews, you know, in, in that way. That's why you have chapter 11. That's why you have chapter 11, right? Which in the book of Hebrews comes after chapter 10, Okay. When he's saying, now don't waver, right? That's why he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's saying, you don't see it. You're not feeling it. But stick with it. Because what is real is not necessarily just what you see. And he goes on to talk about all these biblical figures that died without seeing it. Yet their hope was not in vain. And then he says, in uh, chapter 12, therefore, we, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, a, a cloud of witnesses who embraced God, embraced the covenant, believed in Him, trusted in Him, both in the uh, uh, Hebrew Scriptures and the New Covenant, but who didn't live to see the day, a cloud of witnesses who died without seeing the day, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every sin. Let us repent, in other words. And let us continue to confess our sins, right? Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat uh, down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. The word is true, even if you are uh, enduring some pain right now. Okay, I can think of a million illustrations, but you could think of a million yourself. Uh, endure, endure the pain because you know that the word is indeed true. Okay? Okay. So, having said all of that, okay, uh, now I'll get to the message. No, 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 no. Okay. Let me just say this. Let me just say this. I'll say two things. One is, so having said all of that, I'll ask a question. And this is a valid question. Is, having said all of it, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the, is the world worth saving? You know, I mean, when, when you think about it, I mean, if I were God, and I look at myself, and, and I look at uh, the, uh, the people around me, people will always disappoint you, right? God never disappoints you. Maybe a faulty understanding of God may disappoint you, you know. But, uh, but people will, will disappoint you. The world will disappoint you. The, the, the nicest things in life can disappoint you. And, and, and not only that, but we, we look at the world and we see it just seems almost hopeless. And there's so much, so many horrible things. Is, is the world worth saving? Well, <clears throat> that is, in a sense, a question that is brought up time and again in the Bible, without me just simply obviously saying yes. It, the, the question is brought up in the Bible. For example, without, without it being asked, the question is brought up without it being asked. For example, if you go back to Noah, if you go back to Noah in Genesis, and you go back to the uh, sixth chapter, you read here in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved. God was grieved in his heart. What an anthropomorphic statement to make. God was grieved in his heart that he had made man. That's another one of those things you might want to chew on for a while. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. See, the question's being asked. Is, is, is the world worth saving? But then we see in verse 8, but Noah found favor. This one man. Noah found favor in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Lord. And then we read, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. In fact, you probably know this, that in, uh, the, uh, there's, in the Midrash, you know, on Noah, there's a lot, that, there's a lot of things written about Noah. But one of, the, one of them is, and it's kind of famous, that when it says 
that uh, Noah was blameless in his time, meaning that everyone was so bad that Noah was the best he could find, blameless in his time. Now, who knows if that's, that's right, but uh, I don't think that's right because it says Noah walked with God, you know what I mean? And then you have a few other people, that's another message for another day, but uh, right, Noah walked with, uh, with God. And then we read about building the ark, right? Okay, uh, and, uh, uh, and then uh, the, we read about the, the flood uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, they have the animals and the family and, and then uh, uh, God begins all over again uh, with, uh, with Noah. Okay, uh, let's see. We read in chapter 8 at the end of the flood. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. And we read about uh, finally uh, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark which he had made. He sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water dried up from the earth. Right? And finally, uh, he brings uh, you know, back an olive branch so that we know that the waters are subsiding. All right, and so now they come out of the ark, and we read, uh, go out of the, in verse 16, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds, animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, uh, that they may breed abundantly on the earth uh, and, the, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That's a telltale sign. Fruitful and multiply, dee -dee. start over again. It's like the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply. Just like God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, in our Torah class, we looked at this, and so that's what he tells Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. It has to do with this covenant relationship. It defines what, the word, what blessing means in a certain respect. Okay? All right. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. By the way, it doesn't say Noah wanted to end everything and kill all humanity and he couldn't decide whether to kill his grandchild or not. It doesn't say that. Okay? Nor, by the way, does it say that the ark was built by Stone Age Transformers, okay? <laughs> I just wanted to say, I just wanted to throw that in as well, if you know what I mean. All right. All right, so uh, we see here uh, uh, in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to him, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. And it was worth it, we see. See, there's this, there's this, it's a conversation that helps us to understand. That's the, is it worth it? Is, is the world worth saving? The answer here, yes. Okay? I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Okay? Uh, and then you have, uh, oh, a hymn. <laughs> right? While the earth remains seed time and harvest, uh, cold and heat, summer and winter, uh, day and night shall not cease. Wow. God says, I guess, it, you know, it was worth it. All right. Then uh, we see man continues to, uh, just like God says, he's evil, you know, his sin in his heart, he's, and so Noah messes up, and we see the Tower of Babel, and, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but 
we see periodically, time and again, the question comes up again and again, is the world worth saving? Okay, very quickly, just, just one more. I, ha I have like a bunch of, but just one more, okay? Exodus 32. You have another one of these moments. You know, another, I'll just tell you this while you're turning there. Another one is Sodom and Gomorrah, but in a very interesting kind of way. Abraham, the follower of God, is saying, it's worth it. If there's a righteous person, it's worth it. Right? So the, the interesting thing about that Sodom and Gomorrah passage is that Abraham's desire to save people, just that, that in and of itself, is Abraham is not like, yeah, this place, well, little exclamation mark and things in the question mark and other, other little things where we, you know, this place, no. He's like, God, please, there must be somebody, you know, please save it, right? So to Abraham, it's worth saving. Now, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, you know uh, here, this is where the Jewish people say, yes, Lord, everything you say will do, and, and now we're going to go and build a golden calf, right? So uh, we see that Moses comes down uh, uh, from the, uh, the mountain, okay? Uh, and God says to him, well, here, in verse 7, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. It's kind of like Noah, right? You're the only one. I'm going to get rid of the rest of them. I'm going to start over again with you. This is like asking the question, is the world worth saving? Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why, do you anger, why does your anger burn against this people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to this people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself and did say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all the land which I have spoken. I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he would do to this people. So here, evidently, humanity, Israel in this case, is worth saving. God has placed himself in a covenant relationship because of his love and desire to bless this world. He will not give up on this world, no matter how bad it gets. This afternoon, I won't turn there now, but this afternoon at around three o'clock, we're going to talk about a huge one. We're going to be uh, talking about the only successful prophet. Think about that. Okay? Uh, who saw the people who he was uh, yelling at to repent. They repented. And he got real mad. They're, but they're wicked. It's not like my mother, or, you know, repenting. Or, you know, or uh, my boss who I've been praying for for years. Or These are really wicked people. <laughs> That's just not, this is not right. That's Jonah. We'll be talking about him this afternoon. Evidently, even 
they're worth saving. That's important. Because you know who they are today. You know who they are today. Not us. Yeah. Right? They, they, they are the enemy. They're cutting people's heads off. Wow. I wonder, see, and I need to say this to all of us because it's too weighty. What would happen if you woke up tomorrow morning and you heard that this unbelievable thing is taking place? That uh, all of these, these people are suddenly calling on the, his Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, and, and they're just like weeping and crying. Uh, I wonder how many of us would have the, have the, the attitude of Jonah. And so, well, that's something. You know, how do, how do they get off the hook? They're too evil. Wow, that's sobering. See? And we didn't even get to Yeshua yet. Isn't that something? Think about that. Especially those of you that uh, are not used to being in a messianic uh, context and, you're, and, uh, and you don't hear the, the Hebrew scriptures being spoken of too often and it's just the Old Testament and it's full of wrath and all that business, right? Like someone who uh, I uh, met the other day was telling me all that. So here it seems that from the Hebrew scriptures, the heart of God is desirous, so much so desirous of blessing and of saving and of bringing to himself. And that, my friends, is why he sent Yeshua, why he sent the Messiah to once and for all, uh, not simply in the confines of the temple, but for the entire world be the sin offering, be the scapegoat for the sins of the whole world. And what, uh, what is it, uh, what did Yeshua uh, say when he was being mocked? What did he say uh, when uh, he was being made fun of, when he was just about ready to die? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. These are the people that were his oppressors. His oppressors. They were going to basically cut his head off. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the good news. That is what reconciliation, see, is all about. And so may we take this message of reconciliation. See, in the resurrection of Yeshua, this now... This was like, sign, seal, delivered. Boom. The resurrection is, it has taken place. It is done. The transaction has been made. New life begins now. See? With Yeshua. And so may we be the people who embrace Yeshua, who live that way. May we take this message far and wide. May we demonstrate it in our homes. May we demonstrate it uh, with all in the, the people that we know, uh, with the things that happen to us in our lives, may we live this way and may the world see it and desire the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that the world is indeed worth saving because you saved it. We thank you, Lord. Uh, may we, God, uh, never be as it were as Jonah in this sense, 
and believe that there are those who are not worth saving. Lord, thank you that you saved us. Lord, thank you that you saved us. Thank you, Lord. Who am I? And Lord, uh, we, uh, we live in this uh, world that is still full of sin and hurt, Lord, and we pray, God, uh, that when those things affect us, Lord, that, that we, would, uh, we would continue to move on. We would find solace in, in relating to you and your people, and we would be able to forgive Lord, and we might be able to demonstrate that no matter what circumstance we may be in, we can find comfort in the Lord. For we indeed have been forgiven. And we indeed are called now to make that kind of difference in this world. Thank you, Lord. God, may this truly be in our personal lives a day of reconciliation. And we pray in Messiah's name.